0: From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things Southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we take on the South. let there be light might be the signature phrase of this podcast in the early 1900s a group of progressive south carolinians pushed to modernize their state by championing three things public education a state highway system and electric power politicians spoke of dragging south carolina out of the mud out of the dark and into good schools we know about the schools we know about the roads much less understood as the dark or rather the light until now Today we talk with eminent historian Lacey Ford about his new book, Empowering Communities How Electric Cooperatives Transformed South Carolina, which is published by the University of South Carolina Press. Today, South Carolina's electric cooperatives serve over a quarter of South Carolina's citizens and 70% of the state's land area. But it wasn't always like that. Today, Take on the South finds out why. One of the world's most foremost scholars of the American South, Lacey Ford, is Professor Emeritus in the Department of History at the University of South Carolina, and he's also a scholar in residence at the Institute for Southern Studies. He's author of several groundbreaking and award-winning books, including Deliver Us From Evil, The Slavery Question in the Old South, and Origins of Southern Radicalism, The South Carolina Upcountry, 1800 to 1860, both by Oxford University Press. He has won multiple fellowships, notably from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And he served as Dean of College of Arts and Sciences, Vice Provost and Dean of Graduate Studies, and Vice Provost at the University of South Carolina. His work has been featured widely, including in the New York Times, on CBS Evening News, on CNN, and NPR's All Things Considered. Lacey, welcome to Take on the sound.
1: Uh, thank you, Mark. It's good to be here.
0: Great to have you, Lacey. Um, let's start with a, a broad overview. Empowering Communities is a, a slim volume telling a big, often complicated story. Could you tell listeners what the book does, basically, how the project came about, and the kind of terrain that it surveyed?
1: I think what the book does mainly is tell the stories of the individual electric cooperatives in the state of South Carolina uh, from their inception in the 1930s and the role that they have played and continue to play in empowering rural communities in South Carolina. The initial issue was simply electric service. Rural areas in South Carolina, for the most part, did not have access to electricity. Towns and cities did because the population was dense. Uh, industrial plants were in urban and areas, and this made it profitable for for-profit power companies uh, like Duke Power or a configuration of entities that became South Carolina Electric and Gas to generate electricity and sell to those areas. But it was simply not profitable due to the thinness of the population and the distance of putting up the infrastructure, the power poles, uh, and substations that are required to serve a broad area. Uh, mm-hmm for them was not profitable. There needed to be entities uh, that served rural areas. When Franklin Roosevelt was elected, he was was very interested in having his new deal bring rural electrification uh, to the American countryside, and that included South Carolina. And by that time, South Carolina was anxious to have its rural areas electrified.
0: So, so today, Lacey, how many cooperatives are there um, as we sit
1: here? I believe that there are uh, 18 electric cooperatives that serve uh, customers, one that purchases power for the other cooperatives, uh, and uh, there is a trade association that represents most of those cooperatives, uh, the electric cooperatives of South Carolina, that provides training for workers, uh, does some marketing for them, and was the, the primary sponsor for this book.
0: So, and there were fewer cooperatives to begin with, is that right, have they increased, or?
1: Yes, they've gradually increased in numbers uh, over the years. It took, the first cooperatives were created in 1936, and some of the later ones uh, were into the early 1950s. It took this whole period from about 1936 to 1952 or 54, before the process of getting electricity in rural areas was complete. Now, it wouldn't have taken quite that long, except for World War II, essentially stopped the process for about four years. You, you couldn't buy the supplies you needed, there weren't workers to do it, it just kind of ground to a halt. So there were a few cooperatives that got up and running between 1936 and 1941, and then the other cooperatives sort of got uh, moving between 1946 and 1952.
0: So let, Let's step back from the, the cooperatives for just a moment and think about the, the larger significance of what it means for a rural community to experience electricity. And you are a historian of many things, but one of the things that you, you have stressed throughout your writing and throughout your career is the story of modernization, broadly understood. And of course, modernization, you know, the metrics are fairly predictable, urbanization, industrialization, but one of those metrics that's very, very rarely discussed is the question of light and electricity. And I can see why you were drawn to this project, because it speaks to that question of modernization in a very obvious way, doesn't it?
1: It does, and and one of the most interesting parts of doing research for this book was the opportunity to do some oral history interviews with now elderly people who actually remember from their childhood when there was no electricity in the countryside. And the, the compelling theme that all of them emphasized one way or the other is things were dark. You could look outside your house and perhaps not see any light any time at night. You worked in daylight and you went to bed when it became dark. You had smoky kerosene lanterns uh, were about the only thing. Uh, Many people talked about doing their school homework by the kerosene lanterns that smoked up and you couldn't do it very long. And and think of all the things that electricity makes possible. It makes possible hot water. It makes possible refrigeration. It makes possible washing machines. Ultimately, initially it made radios possible and then televisions possible. The stories that people tell about the first time the lights went on in their house... There's really a whole chapter in the book that just deals with that. And it is a story of human aspirations being met. Uh, And it was people still excited to tell that story. A lot of times the lighting in a home was simply a single light bulb hanging down from the ceiling. And instead of calling that the light, they called it the lifeline. And the light line and the lifeline were the same thing. You know th- this really is a,
0: a, a quiet story about a revolution isn't it because it's the light it's the vanishing of the dark which of course is a fairly recent development in human history generally I mean you don't get cities being um, lit until really the 19th century and then they gas originally in Paris and then in London electricity So this is a a kind of more recent development of the past couple of hundred years. And I I find that banishing of the dark, the ability to to reconceptualize your time in a rural environment to be very interesting. There used to be actually, before electricity and before the the use of non-feeble light, um, a a two, a biphasic sleep pattern in which people would go to bed around 10 o'clock at night, wake up at one o'clock do a couple of hours of work and go back to sleep. They have two sleeps every night. This kind of stops that because what you have is the ability to control light and to control time. And so I think there's a deeper story here that's absolutely fascinating in terms of modernization. The other thing that it does, I'm guessing, is um, air conditioning.
1: Oh, yes, eventually air eventually conditioned. It was really, and as I listened to more and more interviews, I realized as important as electricity was for everybody, it truly revolutionized the role of women in the countryside because their work was so hard. The cooking, the washing, the cleaning. Washing involved boiling water and using scrub boards and wringing things out by hand. There was no ice Uh, You had to go to town and buy a block of ice from the ice house and carry it home and bury it in sawdust and hope that some of it lasted for several days. And iced tea on Sunday was a treat because they didn't have enough ice to do that all the time. It was almost an incredibly difficult thing to be a woman running a household in the pre-electricity. They worked extremely hard, sunrise to sunset, and often did some farm work as well. And the modern conveniences that electricity ran gradually pulled women out of that drudgery and and then ultimately gave women a chance to seek employment outside the home if they wanted, which usually brought another income into a family that needed another income. It may have been a modest income, but it was another income. So so the real
0: economic benefit here as well as the social benefit. Exactly. In your interviews, I'm just curious, did you find anybody who... um, resisted the introduction of electricity into
1: their lives. I can't think of a single one. There were some that resisted paying for it, <laughs> right, you know, which, course, yeah, which might know, not be uh, surprising. Or the, really the complaint was sometimes the slowness from the time they joined. Uh, you had to come up with $5 to join, and you could pay that a dollar at a time over the course of a year. That gives you an idea of how difficult sometimes it was to have income to do this. But sometimes people would have a couple or three dollars in and the lights would not have come to their area because it's a slow process. And they would complain about, well, I've invested three dollars in this, but I'm not getting anything. Yet. But eventually they did.
0: Yeah. yeah, It's one of those um, manifest goods for lots of people. And as you say, I mean, the the, the politics of this is actually quite important, isn't it? Because you say in the book that electric cooperatives were were born in politics. And largely, isn't that a story of the tension between state and federal level, um, and local and state? Could you sort of unpack what that born-in-politics means in terms of the coming of electricity to rural South Carolina?
1: I think that it was in some ways more of a struggle between what I would call rural and agricultural interest and the larger interest of the business community, and that was true at both the state and the federal level. The Great Depression, which ushered in Franklin Roosevelt uh, as president, made it possible. It just overwhelmed all opposition to the government taking on something ambitious, like bringing electricity, anything that was going to help bring the nation out of the despair and deprivation of the Great Depression, had political support. Inside the state, it was a struggle between those predominantly rural areas, which which were not electrified, and the more urban and industrialized portions of the state, particularly what's now the I-85 corridor, it wasn't that then, uh, where most of the text, not all, but most of the textile mills were in the state. Those were profitable for for for-profit power like Duke Power or South Carolina Electric and Gas or Carolina Power and Light. To elect- and some towns had their own electrical system, Anderson, South Carolina did for a while, for example. But most rural areas were, were just left out. And there was a pretty big struggle uh, over this in, in the state legislature to pass the enabling legislation that would allow them to receive federal money, allow cooperatives to, to organize. But the Low Country had a political power based on the way the legislature was apportioned at that time that their population would not have given them. And so essentially with some compromises, prominent uh, Lowcountry politicians, uh, Burnet Maybank, who was mayor of Charleston at the time, later became governor and United States senator, uh, was really the leader. Uh, Edgar Brown, who was the longtime uh, leader of the South Carolina State Senate, and others through full efforts behind supporting uh, getting New Deal investment in South Carolina to bring electricity to rural areas. But the business community had, and especially Duke Power, even though it was out of state, had money to lobby. And eventually the initial legislation carved out most of the Duke Power service area in South Carolina and said there won't be any cooperatives in, in this particular area as a result of the Duke lobbying. But that was just a portion of the state. Um, so it, it was, there was an in interesting political exchange. So so the, the business
0: community, or rather the business interests, especially the urban ones, were, were hesitant uh, to endorse this. I mean, that that's kind of odd at a certain level, don't you think? I mean, you'd think that a, more capacious vision of economic development in South Carolina, that would have appealed
1: to them, right? You, you would think, but the notion really of the state being an engine of economic development, which exists now, we pay a lot of attention to what the Department of Commerce and its forerunners want for the state, that, that had not come into existence yet, but... A lot of the business interests, especially in places like Greenville and Spartanburg, just really didn't see the need for, nor wanted to, to be taxed for. On the other hand, in Greenwood, where Greenwood Mills, a, a textile industry, was a big employer, the Self family, which owned Greenwood Mills, definitely wanted uh, a dam built at Buzzard's Roost uh, for Lake Green, which is now Lake Greenwood, and cheaper electricity for their mills. So you know. As always, it's it's a very particularistic division. But as a general rule, uh, that's what happens. There is a great um, a lot of the sportsmen who use the plantations, uh, no longer productive plantations, uh, in rural low con- in the rural low country of South Carolina as hunt clubs, inundated President Roosevelt with letters, and these were some of the richest business tycoons. In the nation who came here a couple of times a year to, and Jimmy Burns sent a letter to the United States Senator from South Carolina who was close to President Roosevelt, sent the president a letter and said, "These people who are complaining are more concerned about dividends than ducks." In other words, it was it was a hilarious line, but it was, and Roosevelt uh, was very shrewd as a politician, and he realized what their real opposition was. Yeah, yeah. Because
0: you think on the on the sort of surface, it'll be a philosophical opposition to federal intervention in rural South Carolina, but you hear have rural South Carolina wanting it; they want the assistance and they want the involvement.
1: And you know, I'll will just be frank about that. I think what happened with uh, the cre- with rural electricity is that politicians from rural areas in the South were eager for government intervention as long as it didn't change the racial status quo. And it really laid that bare, and they were not embarrassed by laying that bare either, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's really what it is. They began to see that there was no chance for uh, a future of good roads, good schools, and electricity in every household without some federal intervention.
0: Yeah, and of course, you know, I'm sure that some of them talked about the thin end of the wedge after the fact, but nonetheless, Can you read this particular story about the development of the cooperatives into the history of African-American history and the history of race in South Carolina?
1: Uh, Yes, you can. Now, one of the most interesting things is that because it was federally funded, uh, the electric cooperatives made available electricity to black families in rural areas. Now they did have to pay the membership and that was sometimes a stumbling block. But it's also very clear from my interviews that a number of black families uh, did save up and pay the membership and they got service. They didn't have in the early years much representation in the local cooperative boards, but they had service. And a very interesting uh, situation that was detailed in, that is detailed in the book is uh, a prominent Columbia attorney, Irvin Belser, uh, who had argued cases before the Supreme Court, had a plantation down in Clarendon County, and some of his tenants down there had put in their money to get electricity. And one of them, a man named, an uh, African-American man named David Junius, wrote Belser and said, well, we've put our money in, but we don't have electricity, and they're telling me that you're the problem. And uh, to his credit, Belser recognized uh, very quickly that he had neglected to put in his share that he had to put in, and he did so quickly, and sent him a letter and said, please get power to David Juniors and that was as quickly as possible, because it was just going to help the productivity of their work on his, his uh, Clarendon County plantation. So I'm, I'm sure these,
0: these numbers are probably quite hard to find, but did you manage to uncover the sort of percentages and change over time, of proportion of African-American customers
1: from the beginning to end? Uh, no, I was not, and there's a good reason for a very good reason in some ways, is the electric cooperatives have never listed race beside the name of their customers, so they can't look at their roles and know. So mostly what people do is they, they take the uh, racial population of the county yeah. on a percentage basis and assume that it was, was a little bit less than that right. initially. And then, and of course, in later years and, and now, certainly, it's pretty much very directly proportional to it. Makes perfect sense. So we've
0: discussed uh, the role of women as customers and African-Americans as customers What about their role in the actual uh, cooperatives themselves? Um, Were women employed in what capacities and was an African-American presence in these cooperatives as laborers, as workers?
1: Uh, Yes, the the story of women and and African-Americans in the cooperatives is very much the same story that they had in the society as a whole. There were women employed almost entirely as office workers, secretaries, clerks in the early days they were and in, in the early days of the 1950s those that was exclusively white women. It was only after the Civil Rights Act uh, of 1964 and other legislation to where those jobs were opened up to African American women. Uh, now uh, over time uh, as the women's movement proceeded you began to see women, move into higher-level positions. Uh, by the early 1990s, some were working the lines with men, and there's a chapter in the book that describes some of the tensions that created, both of some of the negative reactions f- from the men and then a gradual change into acceptance over time uh, by the men. Uh, the For African-Americans, uh, there was a lot of black labor used in the early years as the hard physical work of clearing out trees and putting in poles and doing that in swamps and all times of year and all times of conditions. Uh, black labor played a very key role. Uh, and over time, after the civil rights legislation, they began to uh, integrate the female labor force in, in the office. Uh, but it wasn't until around the 1990s that you began to see African Americans appearing on the the boards of the local cooperatives. And we focus on that a good deal in the book. And what is strange is there was clearly an effort sort of not to have African American members on the board. But as soon as somebody ran successfully for the board seat and won it, Uh, several of the early African-American officers, once they got on the board, uh, they felt like the rest of the board was very cooperative with them, and they didn't sense a sense of resentment. So essentially, the electric cooperatives changed with the times. They did not really change ahead of the times. Uh, But because the... uh, African-American customer base was so significant, I think uh, even the most reluctant white leadership recognized the need to to make accommodations.
0: That makes perfect sense. And I I think, as you described that, it's worth sort of lingering on the extraordinary physical labor that underwrote these cooperatives and the distribution of power. I mean, we're talking about extremely difficult terrain, aren't we? Swamps places that are inaccessible, places that you would not want to go swimming. And here they are, having to pile drive these poles for miles upon miles. Um, in your interviews, did you manage to talk to people who have done that kind of labor? What was the experience like? A uh, very dangerous job, I should imagine.
1: It was, and, and we did. Uh, there was a story that's in the book that I think people will enjoy, where they picked the smallest man on the team and had them walk out into the swamp to see how far he could go. And he would walk out a certain distance to the next, where the next pole was going to go. And if he was still above ground, he would tell him to come on out. But then the, the, the weakness of that strategy was some of the other guys were heavier and they began to sink. And they all talk about when you start sinking in the pluff mud, all you can do is kick out and then just kind of get on all fours and body crawl your way back to safety. And now, you know, there are uh, amphibious uh, equipment that just roll out there and stick those. It's not that simple, but it's a lot simpler than it was. It was dangerous. Well, simpler, not safer. So it would be remiss
0: if I didn't ask you about uh, more recent developments, and in particular the, the pending resolution of the ongoing issue over the future of Santee Cooper, the state-owned electric utility. And that generates and sells, what, about three-quarters of his electricity to one customer, and that's South Carolina's electric cooperatives. What is the, the nature of that controversy, briefly, and where does it stand in relationship to, to the cooperatives?
1: Well, it's an important issue for the electric cooperatives. Santee Cooper is a a separate entity from the electric cooperatives, uh, but it they are the leading purchasers of Santee Cooper Power, and what happens to Santee Cooper uh, as a generating facility is very important to the electric cooperatives. Uh, their management, though, is very different, and the bond that Santee Cooper's leadership got them in was, was something that was often uh, Concern was often raised by the electric cooperative leadership about some of the decisions they were making, but it's clearly, in in my view, at least in the electric cooperative interest, to have a well-run, independent, state generating company that's going to sell power at reasonable prices to them, uh, rather than and they electric cooperatives buy the the rest of their power from. Uh, Investor-owned utilities, uh, Duke Energy being one of them, and they will and they will doubtless continue to do that. But the future of Santee Cooper, as it hung in the balance, it looks now at this moment like the legislature, at least for a while, is going to attempt to reform Santee Cooper, uh, and let it continue to operate as a state entity. which I think looks like a better option to most of the cooperatives than having to deal with um, investor-owned utility.
0: Thank you. It makes a great deal of sense. So the future of South Carolina electric cooperatives looks good from your perspective.
1: Yes, it does. And one of the reasons it looks good today is they they had a a crisis of their own at uh, Tri-County Electric, which serves Lower Richland and other counties, where... The local board had had abused its power and uh, generated a lot of negative publicity for some really poor decisions and self-serving decisions that they had made. But as individual board members and then later the members of that cooperative rose up against them, the board was ousted through a totally democratic process that's always available there for the cooperatives to do that. And I think that has sent a strong signal to all cooperatives that they need to be very responsive to their membership, who are also their owners. And they have a very democratic system uh, that allowed them to retake control of that cooperative and passed uh, rules that will reform, I think, every cooperative in the state over time uh, to guard against those things in the future. It's also true that the statewide trade association plays a key role in keeping local cooperatives informed of best practices, providing training, and bringing in outside consultants who can sometimes uh, identify problems before they become too large. Lacey, this is a short book,
0: Empowering Communities, um, but a very complicated and involved book. It's also a very accessible book. It's very well written, it's a good read, is there anything by way of parting observations that you'd like to highlight that we haven't discussed?
1: I think we've hit on most of the, uh, the main important topics. There is a good bit in the books that people will find interesting about, for example, the response uh, to storms uh, for the workers, so like, like Hurricane Hugo and the ice storm a few years ago. I think there were really some harrowing and, and also in some inspiring stories about how the workers of the electric cooperatives uh, take risk in those period times and reminding people of how dangerous it is to work with electricity. In the first years, the first generation or so of workers, almost all of them knew someone who had been killed or seriously injured on the job. And many of them talk about near misses. The other thing that I think readers will find inspiring is that several people, uh, well, one one particular a female worker explained it very well. She says, you know, the workers in the electric cooperatives are not your blood family, but they are your family. And there's a strong sense of that identity among employees uh, most of the cooperatives, from from what I can tell, and that really is kind of an inspiring story. And uh, there's also a bit of entertainment to be found about how, uh, from our perspective today, of, of the efforts to uh, uh, pamper the housewife and, and, and to encourage people to encourage husbands to buy like electric equipment for their wives and so forth that, of course, there are things today that we probably would not consider doing without. But uh, we're, there, there's one episode where the electric cooperatives, they encourage the use of electric and offer. You could pay for a refrigerator, say, through your power bill on the, by the month. And so one guy brought a refrigerator out, put it on. The, the woman who was at home says, I can't buy this refrigerator without talking to my husband so he put it on the porch and said i'll come back next week and pick it up if you don't want it and uh the woman said well when he came back the next week i said well you know we really hadn't talked about it but i think i'd rather shoot him than give up this refrigerator.' <laughs> so he's staying well, once it was there that, she was trying to be humorous that wasn't serious no but, i mean this is the nature of consumer
0: culture isn't it once it's there you don't want to get rid of it a very interesting story, Lacey. I mean, it's a kind of conventional story of modernization, but with important caveats. Community is terribly embedded in this story, isn't it? Um, it's the double edged sword of modernization. It brings comfort, but it's also dangerous. Lacey Ford, thank you so much for joining us today, and we really appreciate your take on the South.
1: Thank you for having me, and I encourage readers to, to they can, it's an accessible book. It certainly is.
0: Thank you, Lacey. That was our Take on the South. Let us know yours. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at U of SC South. Take on the South is produced by Matt Simmons of the Institute for Southern Studies. Special thanks to Professor Dave Garner of the University of South Carolina School of Music for composing our music. Tune in next time for another Take on the South.